You have reached the Dumb Christian. Welcome. I am your host, Jonathan, and today we are actually starting in John chapter 13. I'm not exactly sure how far we're going to get, but basically this is when everything shifts and Jesus is trying to get in like a last minute cram study session before he is illegally arrested, illegally tried, and then crucified because he's betrayed by one of his close friends. So we're going to start in John chapter 13 and and really try and understand what's happening here, uh, and then we'll see how far we go from there. Uh, But the Bible is about to get very real. We might get a little bit colorful, so buckle up and welcome to Dumb Christian. John chapters 13 through 17 really cover the span of maybe like five hours, which is a really unique uh, cluster of chapters together when everything else in the Bible, like a chapter might cover a, a week, a month, a year, several years, right? So John here is actually condensing about five hours into five chapters. And um, about four or five days ago is when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's Thursday evening and this it's just starting to the sun's just starting to set. And there the Jesus and his disciples are hanging out in the upstairs, the second floor of one of their friends houses. We have no idea whose house it is, but it's not Jesus or any one of his disciples. One of the other Gospels tells us that uh, it's just some random guy who let Jesus and his 12 buddies throw a party upstairs. So they've set up, they've prepared. This is called the upper room, right? Maybe you've heard of that before. And they're about to enjoy their Passover meal. If you remember, Passover is a week-long party celebrating how well God took care of Israel when they could not take care of themselves by saving them from slavery in Egypt. And it's a week-long celebration, seven to ten days, depending on where you're at in Israel. And before they get into the meal, Jesus gets up, takes off his... um, dinner jacket, I guess, and puts on like a beach towel all around his waist and then grabs this really big, heavy stone bowl. You know, the the big bowl that everyone has in their house that like doubles as a, a foot soaking basin or a puke bucket or a salad bowl, right? That's the bowl Jesus grabs and he fills it with water and he starts washing the disciples' feet. And there is a lot going on when Jesus does this. It was fairly common at the entrance of a home back in that day to have a large stone basin where guests and family members could wash their feet when they entered the house. They didn't have a shoe mat. Um, You could take your sandals off, but your feet are still dirty because there's no paved sidewalk. There's no like asphalt highways. And even if you had transportation like a donkey or a camel or a Prius, they didn't have paved parking lots. So when you arrived, you've arrived at your destination. You still had to walk in the dirt. They didn't have closed toed shoes. It was sandals. And everywhere you went, regardless of how well you tried to protect your feet, you still got dusty and dirty. So people would have a wash basin at the entrance, wash your feet as you come in. The wealthy people, for their wealthy guests, 
would have so many servants. We we have too many. We don't know what to do with. So, hey, you come over here and wash everyone's feet. To be a foot washer is at least as low as, if not lower than the shepherd. Remember, we talked about how lowly it was to be a shepherd. Hey, you come here and wash the our guests' feet. And while this lowly, filthy foot washer is doing their job, the guests would continue, you know, their conversation as though this person didn't even exist, ignoring them. Unless, you know, ow, that hurt. Or, all right, finish it up. Dry my feet off. I'm busy. I want to I want to move on to something else. But here is Jesus. And the disciples have already resolved in their hearts. They've declared. They've made a profession. We believe, Jesus, that you are the Son of God. We believe you are divine in a body. You are divinity in a body. You are God. And here, this person they believe is God has submitted himself on his knees, on the dirty floor to wash their feet. And these aren't wealthy guests, right? These are grimy, stinky fishermen. So he's wiping their feet that have walked in dust and camel shit all day long. And here is God washing their feet. And and we're going to kind of condense some story out of order a little bit. So be sure to go read it for yourself. Um, but we're going to, to help with the flow of, of what we're talking about here, we're going to kind of mix some things up and mash them together a little bit. So while Jesus is washing their feet, he's also teaching and talking to them. And he says, uh, you know, we've spent the last three years together and that's been pretty good time, right? You guys have had, you've enjoyed our time together. Oh yeah, Jesus, you're great. And he says, well, God is about to do something incredible. It's going to be brand new. You have never seen or heard anything like this. Um, We're going to call it the new covenant. Wink, wink. Um, And it's going to be something unprecedented, brand new and amazing. But to, for everyone to participate in this new thing that God has, we're going to have to continue that strong relationship that we've built over the past few years. We're going to have to remain in close, intimate connection, relationship for you guys to be able to succeed in this new thing that God has for you to do. And I'm going to leave. I'm long story short, I'm going to end up going back to the father. I'm going to leave you, but I will send someone who's a better helper than just me being in the body. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. Uh, this is the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. Sometimes referred to as Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, Spirit of Christ. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, equip you, and empower you to do these new things. That Holy Spirit is going to convict you of, uh, of when you've done things you're not supposed to, and he's going to encourage you and equip you to do the good things that you're supposed to be doing, and he's going to remind you of all the things that I taught you, and then he's going to teach you what those things mean, and he's going to it's going to be way better for Holy Spirit to come than for me to continue being this like motivational speaker traveling from convention center to convention center. Holy Spirit's going to be way better. And as he dwells inside of you, you will be able to continue abiding with me. That's the word, which means to like be present with, to 
to be with, you'll be able to continue abiding with me by abiding with my spirit that will live inside of you. And he's washing their feet and 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 they're like listening and they're like, okay, how does this all connect? Is this an, uh, uh, an object lesson? We know Jesus likes metaphors and allegory and, and symbolism and stuff. What, what's he trying to get at with washing our feet, though? And he says, yes, that's a good question. I am the master. And if you want to continue abiding in me, doing the things that I have for you, look, I'm, I'm God in flesh and I'm washing your feet. And if you call me master, then you also should wash each other's feet. And they're kind of a little perplexed, like, okay, is this a spiritual significance? Are we really supposed to wash each other's feet? Like, what's going on there? This is occurring... Just a few days ago, Jesus cleansed the temple. At the beginning of his ministry, he goes into the temple, clears out all the vendors and the kiosks and the merchants because they're scamming people, right? They're tricking people and 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 um, and cheating them. That's what I was trying to say. They're cheating people out of their money as they're trying to like pay for sacrifices and stuff. Well, the other gospels tell us that Jesus does it again here just a couple days ago. So Jesus has already demonstrated in a lot of ways that he's not afraid to put his foot down. He's not afraid to take a firm stand on something when it's very important. And so they've seen this, they've witnessed this, and they, you know, there's this attitude. Remember when he was entered into Jerusalem, they're like, yes, he's going to come in and he's going to throw off the shackles of oppression and, and he cleansed the temple again and he's doing it. He's really doing it. And, um, and then he washes their feet in the middle of this attitude where they are happy to embrace and, and follow him into this. uh, Yeah. Let's flip tables and whip people who are being a bunch of assholes. Jesus says, that's not the default that I want you to live in. The default attitude and position I want you to be in is one of washing feet, even for lowly, stinky fishermen. And then Jesus comes up to Peter. And I love Peter. The more I think about Peter, the more I'm like, you know, he's actually a pretty excellent example for all of us. Because if you spent very much time in church, you know that Peter's constantly thrown under the bus for opening his mouth, saying things he shouldn't say and, and kind of going off the deep end. But man, who doesn't do that? I, I look at myself and I'm like, Peter's better than me. Jesus comes up to Peter. Here's what happens. He comes up to Peter and Peter says, Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. And, and Jesus is, Peter's trying to honor Jesus, right? He has this attitude. I, I'll never, Jesus, I'll never treat you like a lowly, filthy, grimy foot washer. You're bigger than that. You're better than that. And I don't want to look at you or treat you with that type of disrespect. And a couple things happen here. And the first one I think is subtext. And, and I think Jesus is acting in a way that almost kind of makes everyone realize 
that even that lowly, grimy foot washer is a valuable person. That title of lowly, grimy foot washer isn't their identity. Almost like Jesus is saying, I want you to see even the lowliest of lowlies as though you were looking at me. And that's a total paradigm shift, right? Like how we look at each other and people who we might otherwise think don't deserve to be looked at with respect and honor. But then the second thing that happens here, Jesus says, all right, Peter, if you say so, but I need you to understand, if you don't let me wash my feet, we can't be best friends anymore. (laughs) And Peter's like, what? Why? And so what he says specifically is, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. We're not buddies. We cannot abide together like we have been over the past three years. I have to wash your feet. And then in classic Peter form, he says, okay, well then not just my feet, but all of me. And he kind of like, you know, like takes off his jacket and sticks his chest out. Wash every part of me, Jesus. And I imagine like Peter at this point is like that kid that means well and that he's excited and he's just trying to do the best that he can to fit into the scenario, but it's getting a little bit annoying. And here's the thing. Peter is trying he, he's taken this little thing that he knows about Jesus and he's trying to do good with it. He's trying to have the right attitude, right perspective. He just keeps screwing it up. And I'm like, man, that's me. We give Peter a hard time, but I'm worse. I'm sure of it. And then, so Jesus, hold your horses, Peter. Uh, you know, don't get your panties all in a bunch. But what you need to understand is that if you've had a bath... Your whole body's clean. You just need the dust wiped off of your feet. There's a few things that Jesus is trying to teach them here. One of them is, he says, you've, 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 you've called me master, I'm God, and you've seen me wash feet, so you should also treat people like this. You should wash feet. It is a physical, I, I do think he is instructing them, hey, Put yourself in a humble position because every once in a while we need to be removed from our horses, our high horses, right? We need to be humbled every once in a while. So yeah, from time to time, you should probably wash feet. But then he kind of shifts into this, we can't be best friends. We can't maintain the close, intimate, thriving, growing relationship that we have if you don't let me wash your feet. Because you've had a bath, your body's clean, your feet are dusty, they need to be wiped I have to do that. And I think the spiritual significance of what's going on here is Jesus is referring to baptism when he says you've had a bath. The word baptize is actually just an English version of the Greek word baptizo. When you read the rest of the Bible, the in English, it's translating what the Greek word says what it means in English, except for a few words. And one of those words is baptism or baptize. It doesn't translate the word baptize. It just changes it to sound like an English word. The Greek word baptizo literally means to immerse, to to immerse under the water, to be fully bathed if you will. And he's saying, once you are baptized, once you go through this process of, of cleansing, which we've talked about, go ahead and check out John the Baptist and the Mikvah, a couple of others in there about baptism. 
But basically, once you've been baptized, um, that whole process of sanctification being made righteous in God's eyes, not because you were really fantastic, but because you obeyed, basically, uh, and there's more to come later. Um, But all you need then is your feet, the dust wiped off your feet. Jesus is about to go to the cross and change everything up to this point. The whole law, the purpose of the dynamic of Judaism and the Israelite faith is that if we can obey the rules, do the good things, don't do the bad things, and not sin, then God will look upon us with favor. But what Jesus is about to do on the cross is he's actually going to solve the problem of sin so that sin and how good you are or how bad you are is no longer the thing that defines your relationship with God. The thing after Jesus goes to the cross, the thing that, according to the Bible, that defines your relationship with God is whether or not you believe in and accept Jesus. But sin no longer has anything to do with it because he's saying, look, everyone has the sin problem. So I'm going to change it from being a sin issue to a Jesus issue. But... Sin will still exist. It will still cause brokenness in relationships. It will still rend the spirit and will still have consequences. Um, And even if somehow you manage never to sin again, you still walk in a world littered with sin dust. And especially in our modern 2020 world where it's in social media, it's in the news, it's on every TV show and movie and song, and it's the way we talk about people. It's the way we laugh at and encourage others to talk about people. It's inescapable. And so even if you can avoid sinning for the rest of your life, which I don't know if is even possible, you're still going to be covered in the dust of sin. Why is this important? Because... New Testament and Old Testament both tell us that Satan is looking for people to devour, to tear to shreds, to kill, to ruin, to ruin their lives, to take away their hope, to take away their joy, to just make them feel destitute and worthless and hopeless. But there's a catch. There's a limit to who he can devour. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, because we've been in Genesis on Mondays, we notice that there's a curse when sin occurs. There's a curse for the man, for the woman, and the curse for the serpent, for the devil, for Satan is, you shall slither on your belly and eat what? Dust. Yeah. So what Jesus is saying here is, Yes, I take care of the sin issue on the cross, but you still walk in a world that is going to make you dusty with the dust of sin. And and that is what Satan is going to be looking for, to be able to rip and tear and shred and devour and ruin. And if you don't let me wipe the dust from your feet as you have walked throughout the world. If we don't regularly come to this place where you let me wash the dust from your feet, you're putting yourself in a position to not 
be able to succeed in this new thing that God has for you because your attention will be so focused on being torn to shreds, trying to survive while the enemy is just ripping you to pieces. But let me wash that dust off your feet so that we can walk in this new mission together so that we can abide together so that we can continue to pursue and press into and thrive in our relationship together. This is what Jesus is saying to Peter. And Peter says, okay. And he lets Jesus wash his feet. And then Jesus finally makes his way to Judas. And even Judas, who is about to betray Jesus, gets his feet washed. I think whatever is there for us to glean maybe speaks for itself. After he's done washing everyone's feet, Jesus gets back up, removes the towel, puts back on his dinner coat, and sits down at the center, and they pose for da Vinci's painting, The Last Supper. Then after they pose for their painting, uh, Jesus continues to kind of give them a heads up. Here is what's coming down the line. There's a few things that are going to happen over the course of this evening. The first is, I'm going to be betrayed. One of you is going to betray me. Excuse me, what? And the other gospels tell us that everyone kind of starts up in this kind of frantic panic. Is it me? Is it me? Who is it? And then Peter looks over and John's gospel says uh, that Peter looked at the disciple who Jesus loved. We know from context other at other places in the gospel that John, that this disciple that Jesus loved is John himself. This is how John refers to himself in his gospel instead of saying me or even using his own name in the third person, John. Uh, Quick side note, I think John doesn't call himself the disciple that Jesus loved from a place of arrogance and haha, I'm better than everyone, but actually is trying to teach his readers, hey, this is how we each should think about ourselves. Because when we come into Jesus and believe in him, that's how he sees his kids, his people, believers in him. They are the ones that he loves. Anyway, so Peter looks over at John and kind of like signals, like gives him the eye. Ask Jesus who's going to betray us, see? John leans in to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, who is it? Who's going to betray you? And Jesus whispers back, it'll be the one that I give this bread to. Now, during the meal, Jesus instituted something called the Lord's Supper, John doesn't record it. Other Gospels do. Again, I think John doesn't include a lot of the same details the other Gospels do because it's kind of like, well, they've already written about it. Why do I need to repeat it? I'm just filling in the gaps. During the meal, the Passover meal, Jesus took the elements of the Passover meal and he turned them into a way to remember Jesus. And what he did during the meal is he took bread, matzah bread, flat bread, like skin. And he says, I want you to eat this bread. And when you eat it, I want you to remember that God stepped down from heaven and put on a body. Then what I want you to do is I want you to drink this wine. And some churches will drink juice instead. And he says, I want you to drink this 
fruit of the vine. And I want you to remember that after God put on a body, he shed his own blood to solve the sin problem. This is communion. Some churches take it every week. Some do like once a month or once a quarter. Um, But this is what's happening when churches take communion, when they eat the bread and they drink the wine. They're remembering that God put on a body and he shed his own blood to solve the sin problem. And Jesus looks at John and he says, the person who I give this piece of bread to is the one who's going to betray me. And he takes the bread, he dips it in the wine, and he hands it to Judas. I don't think that Jesus is simply like doing this as a a point, like pointing the finger, like that's who is going to be the one that betrays me. I, I think that what Jesus is doing is he's extending to Judas the value of what he's about to accomplish on the cross by solving all the, the the problem of sin for all time, every past sin, every present sin and every future sin ever. I think Jesus is indicating to Judas, this is even for you. And then the Bible says that after Jesus gave Judas the morsel of bread, Satan entered Judas. Now, Satan is an interesting word as well. We often use Satan to describe a being or a person. But even the Greek word Satan, like baptism, in like baptize into English is just like changing the Greek word to make it sound like an English word. In the Greek, Satan is just a Hebrew word changed to make it sound more Greek. And I don't know how to pronounce the Hebrew or the Greek word version of Satan. But that's where it comes from. So we have to go back to the Hebrew understanding of what Satan means. And although it is from time to time used to identify a person, a being, it most prominently means, refers to an attitude of opposition. Uh, or, Or another word is adversary, someone who is adverse to Jesus, God the goodness, right? Someone who is in direct, active opposition. And, and, and so for dumb Christian purposes, we're going to say that um, this attitude of direct opposition to Jesus' mission and purpose took over Judas. And that was his mission, to undermine Jesus. I, I'm, and, and, I, I, I understand that everybody has a unique view on the world and life and what's happening, what's going on and how to interpret everything. And there was something about Judas's worldview that convinced him he needed to oppose Jesus. He didn't like the way that Jesus cared for the poor, the way that Jesus made certain people a priority, the way that he handled the Pharisees and, and money and all these things. And he, made it his mission to oppose Jesus' mission. And Judas leaves. 
Jesus knows that as Judas leaves, he synchronized his watches. We have like three hours before the shit's about to hit the fan. So let's get back to that study cram session. I'm going to fill you guys in. There's a few things that are going to happen the rest of the evening tonight. And I need to tell you guys what's going to happen long term so that when everything starts to turn upside down, crazy town banana pants, uh, you guys will at least have a foundation to work with. First, Peter, you're going to deny me before the morning rooster crows. Peter says, no, I would die for you. Jesus says, I'm telling you, that's what's going to happen. Shut up and listen to me. Next thing I need you to understand is the world is going to hate you. Everyone who rejects me will hate you. Now, there's plenty, you know, there's lots of reasons why people can hate Christians because we're broken people. I like to say that we're just broken things, breaking things. Who believe Jesus fixes us, right? And 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 yet the world is going to hate you. And and sometimes the world justifies their hatred of Christianity because some people just don't like religion. Some people look at the ways that people who profess Christianity have abused their power that's come with their position, or they've used it as an excuse to like abuse other people. But ultimately, Jesus is saying the world's going to hate you because no one wants to be told that. Uh, they're just broke, broken things, breaking things, right? Especially self-made people who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, earned their living, and have made a name for themselves. Everybody, I think, would like to be able to save themselves, to be good enough on their own. And so to have this message that says, hey, you're not good enough, but it's okay because God is good enough and he, and if we believe in and accept him, then we can have right relationship. And, and that rubs people the wrong way. Um, I don't know how, you know, I don't know how else he could say it. If that is true, then, you know, I guess that's kind of the only way you can say it and probably the way you should say it. I don't know. Okay. Uh, then Jesus praise. And this is John chapter 17. So I guess, look at this. We managed to cover 13 through 17. Like it's all just crammed in there. One of the things I really want to encourage you guys go read it for yourself. The reason why we skimmed over like 14, 15 and 16 and and 17 is because it's a lot of just Jesus talking. And in these chapters, he's not using like flowery metaphors that aren't, are very confusing. He's very upfront, very clear, and he says things very easily to understand. And it's difficult to talk about those things without turning it into a sermon. Like, hey, this is how it applies to your life and this is what you should do. Sometimes we get into that here in Dumb Christian, um, but in a lot of times it's just because, oh, this is how it translates and it just happens to fit perfectly into a nice little... <laughs> you know, soundbite or a bumper sticker phrase that might be encouraging. But Jesus is talking to the disciples, giving them very simple, easy to understand lessons. And he's very clear about what he means. I encourage you go read it for yourself. If you read it and it's unclear to you, uh, leave us a comment, a message on YouTube or, or something. And, um, and maybe we'll come back and we'll clarify some of those things, but I want to try to avoid like, hey, here's the Bible and how it should apply to your life. We're really just trying to understand what was happening then and and how we can understand it now. But the last thing he does before they take off um, is he prays 
over the disciples. And, and there's this interesting way that he prays. And I, I just think this is so interesting. I want to include it. Jesus prays that God, the, the father will protect the disciples, protect those who believe in Jesus, not just the ones in the room, but everyone who will ever believe in Jesus. So if you are listening and you find yourself in a position where you believe in Jesus, what's very interesting here is in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for you. Yeah. And what he prayed specifically kind of blows my mind if Jesus is really God and all this is true. Because what he prays is, he says, Father, cultivate the same kind of unity among my believers that you and I share. Remember, Jesus is God. Uh, if you, if you, you know, there's the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you haven't heard of that or have difficulty wrapping your head around it, we did an episode early in the first 10 where we talk about the Trinity. So maybe check that out. But here is Jesus talking to the Father. They are both God, equally God, and yet independent of each other, but their unity is divine. They have a divine God kind of unity. And here Jesus is praying, Father, for the people who believe in me, will you give them the same kind of unity that you and I have as God? And I don't really know how to explain this. I don't know how to dumb this down or how to, you know, clarify what this means, except to just say, this is a pretty incredible concept that Jesus is asking for. And then he takes it even a step further. And again, this is him praying for while he's in heaven and those who follow him, believe in him are left behind with this really cool new mission that God wants to accomplish with these people who believe in Jesus. He's saying, while they're trying to do the work that you have for them, give them unity like you and I have, but also Take those who are united, the united believers, and would you unite them with you and I the same way that you and I are united? So he's asking God the Father to create a way that us as broken things, breaking things, when we're united in the way that we believe in Jesus— believers would be united, but also that they would be united with God, with God's kind of unity, Trinity unity. And we're going to leave it there on a note that might be really confusing, but I think it's simple to understand that what Jesus is asking for is something really incredible and way beyond our capacity to understand how it would work and what it would mean, except to say that Jesus, God the Son, thinks it's possible and wants it for those who follow him and believe in him. But that is John chapters 13 through 17. I wasn't sure if we'd make it all the way, but I think, yeah, I think we got it. If you have any questions, please leave us a comment. And uh, we're going to pick up next time uh, when Judas brings the, the noise. But then Jesus has something to say about that. Yeah, I have been your host, Jonathan, the dumb Christian. I love you guys. I'll catch you later. 
That is the last five hours of Jesus' life before things just go haywire. Be sure to check us out on YouTube. We have exclusive content up there, always working on putting new stuff out for you. Uh, Dumb Christian Podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe, like, ring the bell so that you know when new stuff is about to drop. We'll catch you later. I love you guys. We'll be right back. 